Hello and welcome to another episode of Mildly Amusing History Class. Today we're going to be talking about the settlement of the colony of Rhode Island, which is one of my favorite colonial settlements, not just because it's my home, but because of the wonderful combination of wackiness and progressivism that define the settlement of this colony. So here we go. So I'd like to start by discussing how Rhode Island got its name, which was, and still is, Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. Uh, Yes, all of that is Rhode Island's official name making it the smallest state but with the longest name of any of the modern 50 states. As some of you might already know, Rhode Island actually considered removing the Providence Plantations part of the name several years ago, uh, but in a referendum, voters decided to keep the long form. And while a lot of people will naturally think of slave plantations, that wasn't super widespread in the colony or the later state. Rhode Island does have an unfortunate history with slavery, but this was actually by being a major player in the international slave trade. While there were slaves in the colony, and some very large farms with slaves, these were nothing like what would be developed in southern colonies and states, so not exactly what most people think of when they think of plantation um, in the Rhode Island area. So back in 1524, an explorer named Giovanni Verrazzano was sailing around the area and documented Block Island, which is several miles off the coast. He wrote that the island reminded him of the Greek Isle of Rhodes, which I guess he must have been to, so he called it Rhode Island. However, there was another much larger island, which is called Aquidneck Island today, but which kind of took on the Rhode Island name as more and more Europeans went to the area. Block Island was given that name that it has today after a guy named Adrian Block visited it and decided, yep, I'm going to name this after me. So that's where the Rhode Island name comes from. And in appreciation for giving the place a name and doing literally nothing else, Rhode Islanders named a big bridge to Aquidneck Island after Giovanni Verrazzano. So that's not a bad deal for him. So at the time of European settlement, there were three primary Native American tribes living in the area. The Nipmuc people lived in present-day central Massachusetts, Connecticut, and northwestern Rhode Island. The Wampanoag people held land in central Rhode Island, but the largest tribe was definitely the Narragansett Indians. They claimed land along what is now Narragansett Bay from central to southern Rhode Island. Around the time of early European settlement, the Pequot tribe from Connecticut engaged in a war against the Narragansetts for control of their territory. So that's interesting for a number of reasons. Remember that native people were not these quote-unquote babes in the woods who lived as quote-unquote savages in this perfect state of nature or any other stupid stereotype like that. Indigenous people, just like Europeans, looked for opportunities to expand their own power and reach both by peaceful means, such as creating alliances, and by going to war. Additionally, many native groups were in a state of flux during this period because of the arrival of Europeans, both because this upset traditional balances of power and because European diseases were making significant changes in native communities' populations and power structures. Therefore, this sometimes led to conflict as different groups of people tried to negotiate the new circumstances they found themselves facing at this time. In Rhode Island, we're going to look at three settlements that forged these new circumstances. These are Providence, founded by Roger Williams, Portsmouth, founded by Anne Hutchinson, and Warwick, founded by Samuel Gordon. Providence, founded first chronologically, is a good jumping off point because its founding is directly related to our last episode, Massachusetts Bay, so that works out nicely. Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, was born in England in 1603. He eventually became a clergyman, but he started to like what the Puritans were saying about the Church of England needing purification. That was kind of a bummer for his family, though, because Puritan ministers weren't really wanted in England, so that was going to make getting a job pretty tough. He eventually married and moved to Massachusetts Bay to try to work as a clergyman there. However, he was identifying a lot more as a separatist than a Puritan at this point. Remember, those are people who felt that the Church of England was basically beyond repair and purifying it wasn't going to be good enough. 
He also developed a few additional beliefs around this time that were a wee bit problematic for the dogmatic Puritans who ran Massachusetts Bay. Remember that the Puritans moved to America not to give everyone the freedom to practice whatever religion they wanted, but so they could have the freedom to practice religion the way they wanted. And part of doing that was basically setting up a theocracy in Massachusetts Bay, with people being able to be punished by civil authorities for breaking religious rules like the Ten Commandments. Well, Roger Williams had big issues with all of this. He thought it was crazy for the regular civil government to have anything to do with religion. This makes him one of the first proponents of the separation of church and state. He also believed in complete religious freedom. Basically, he believed that compelling someone to believe a particular way was wrong because then they wouldn't have the option to freely choose the quote-unquote right way. Remember, he himself was deeply religious, so yes, he would have wanted everyone to believe, but he thought if he made it compulsory, people weren't really following God, and forcing people into it made a mockery of the whole thing. So obviously, those are some pretty progressive views for the 1600s, and the Puritans were not too happy about it. In addition to believing the Puritans were wrong about the Church of England, their theocratic government, and coercing people into following the Puritan Church, Roger Williams also had some thoughts about the New Englanders' treatment of Native Americans. Williams had what was considered at the time, and honestly for a way too long time after that, this weird view that white people couldn't just come take land from Native Americans and say, hey, I'm here, so this is mine now. Williams believed that Europeans could settle in the New World, but only after negotiating with and purchasing land from the people who were already living there. He started going around and spreading this view too, and sharing his opinion that both Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay were wrong to have not negotiated with indigenous people when they set themselves up. So after all this crazy talk, the Puritans just couldn't take any more of this heretical nonsense in their colony anymore. The Massachusetts Bay authorities finally told Williams that he had to get out of there and he was ruining the colony for everybody else. But it was winter at this point, so they told him he could stay till spring if he would shut up about all his crazy ideas. But apparently Williams did not shut up and just kept meeting with people in his home to preach about his beliefs. So the Puritan authorities were fed up and went to his house to tell him, we're kicking you out of here right now. But Williams had already left a couple days before in the middle of a snowstorm. And I guess the Puritan authorities were like, yeah, you get out and don't come back. So as you might imagine, traveling in the 1600s in New England in winter by yourself isn't exactly the easiest. And apparently Williams was sick with pneumonia or something on top of that. So not great travel conditions. And the Massachusetts Bay authorities were probably thinking with some satisfaction that Williams might have died traveling in the wilderness. However, Williams spent the winter with the Wampanoag Indians. He usually got along great with the local native communities, probably because he believed that settlers should buy their land from native groups fairly, and he also learned their languages. Evidently, Williams had been incredibly talented at learning languages from the time he was a kid, and he eventually wrote a book about the Narragansett language. So anyway, in the spring, Williams decided to start his own settlement. One early attempt that he tried was considered to possibly be within the bounds of the Plymouth Colony's charter, so Williams and some of his followers went across the Seekonk River and established their permanent settlement. When Williams arrived at that place, a local Narragansett greeted Williams by saying, What cheer, Neetop? Uh, the first part was typical English, basically slang at the time. It was a shortened form of, What cheery news do you bring? And Neetop means friend in the Narragansett language, so it's basically the equivalent of, Hey man, what's up? And that's the story of how the city of Providence got its motto, which even today is, what cheer? So if you're ever driving around Providence and wonder why the city garbage cans all say, what cheer, on them, now you know. 
Sir Roger Williams established his settlement at this location in 1636 after purchasing the land from the Narragansett Indians. He called the settlement Providence, which basically means the will of God. And here, Williams was able to put his ideas into practice. He established it as a colony that would have a complete separation between religious and civil government, and all adult men could vote regardless of religion. He welcomed people of all religions, as well as atheists, who were considered quite scandalous at the time. Jews and Quakers were other persecuted groups that were tolerated in the colony, even though Williams thought the Quakers were ridiculously wrong on religious matters. Not surprisingly, perhaps, considering how unique and at the time bizarre the colony was, it took a really long time for the settlement to get a charter from the crown. But they finally did get one in 1663 from Charles II. The charter called the colony a, quote, lively experiment and provided that, quote, all and every person and persons may from time to time and at all times hereafter freely and fully have and enjoy his and their own judgments and consciences in matters of religious concernments, end quote. Interestingly, Rhode Islanders were apparently cool enough with this charter to not bother writing a constitution for the state during the revolution, and they continued to use this royal charter until 1842, when a rebellion made it obvious that all men, regardless of if they own land, should have the right to vote. So the second settlement to discuss in Rhode Island is the settlement of Portsmouth, established by Anne Hutchinson and her followers in 1638. Anne Hutchinson was another religious dissenter in Massachusetts Bay, now, I haven't talked about this too much, but it's important to know that one of the ways that Puritans differed from and wanted to reform the Church of England was the idea of predestination. Puritans shared theologian John Calvin's belief that God already knew who was saved, meaning going to heaven when they died, and who was damned, meaning going to hell. Calvinists believed what you did on earth didn't really matter because God already knew and had predestined your fate. The thing with Calvinism is, if you really think about it, it really doesn't matter how you act on earth because, hey, God already knows what's going to happen to you. You know, theoretically, you could act really badly, I guess. However, as mentioned before, the Puritans had really strict rules about how people needed to live in their community, and Puritans were expected to follow those rules. Now, most Puritans kind of squared this circle by saying, sort of, some people are predestined to be saints and go to heaven, and it's a sign that a person is a saint if we look at their life and they've always done these good works. Basically, the good works won't get you into heaven. But if you see a person who's always doing good works, that might be a sign that they are predestined to go to heaven. If that seems really confusing, don't worry too much because I think you still can understand Anne Hutchinson, even if her theology seems pretty foreign to what a lot of people believe or think about today. So Anne Hutchinson was a Puritan immigrant to Massachusetts Bay, and while living there, she sort of got herself into some trouble. Apparently, she was a pretty smart cookie and started pointing out that, hey, if my actions, behaviors, or good works have no impact on whether or not I'm going to heaven, why do I need to follow the rules of these local leaders and clergymen? And she shared these thoughts in meetings and Bible groups of women that she hosted in her home. Um, just as a little side note, this is a good time to point out that New Englanders had very high rates of literacy for the time. Men and women, regardless of social status, all learned to read. Uh, the purpose of this was to read the Bible for themselves, which was a key tenet of Protestantism. Uh, communities that were large enough were ultimately required to create schools to teach children to read. Uh, the downside of this, if you want to control the population, is that people who can read stuff can interpret it for themselves, which is what Anne Hutchinson started doing. So having this lady have her own Bible study group with some questionable ideas was bad enough for the Puritan authorities, uh, but then men also started attending her groups, and that was a big red flag for Massachusetts Bay authorities. 
women talking about stuff together was bad, but now this lady was telling men what to think? Oh no. So they hauled her into court to answer for herself, but like I said, Hutchinson was quite a smart cookie, uh, and she answered all their questions so well they weren't quite sure what to do with her. Uh, However, she eventually started telling the court that she knew she was right because God had personally revealed it to her. Um, To be honest, I'm not exactly sure how or why this was seen as like super different from regular praying, Uh, but I guess the Puritans were outraged that Hutchinson was basically saying that God had stopped by for a personal chat with her. Um, So they ended up kicking her out of the colony. Hutchinson, who was pregnant at the time, and her followers left Massachusetts Bay to start their own settlement. So once again, we've got another pregnant woman who's going out to make a whole new community uh, while she's expecting a child. Um, At least this isn't a transatlantic voyage, so that's good. Um, And this is like the third episode that we've had uh, this same situation. Uh, So anyway, Hutchinson's... group went south to Rhode Island, but they didn't settle in Providence. And I think maybe this is just evidence that uh, women at this time just had a lot of kids and being pregnant was just kind of a fact of life. The fact that we're, you know, saying this and seeing this over and over again. Um, So they settle in um, Rhode Island, but not in Providence. And as I mentioned before, uh, there's a large island very near off the coast known as Aquidneck Island, and that's the Rhode Island part of Rhode Island and Providence plantations. Uh, So they set up shop there and founded the community of Portsmouth. So ultimately, Hutchinson ended up moving to New York, uh, not the city, um, I think it was Long Island, uh, several years later and founded a whole new settlement. Uh, Very unfortunately for her, though, she and all but one of her 14 children uh, were killed by Native Americans. So apparently the leaders back in Massachusetts Bay were like, yep, serves her right. Uh, So that's harsh. The last settlement uh, in Rhode Island that we're going to discuss is Shawmet, or Warwick, as it was later known. Uh, this settlement was founded by uh, Samuel Gordon and his followers. As you'll see, Samuel Gordon uh, seems to me in many ways to be kind of the quintessential Rhode Islander. Um, in some ways, you just want to cheer for him, and he's being so awesome and so cool. Um, and at other times, he just wants to you roll your eyes like all the way back into your head and just be like, Samuel Gordon, oh my god, like, just stop. <laughs> um, so uh, Gordon moved to Massachusetts Bay just as the whole Anne Hutchinson controversy was going down. And he managed to keep kind of quiet about his beliefs until he moved to the Plymouth Colony, which as we'll see was, you know, not something he typically did. Um, so once he got there, he started sharing some of his very unconventional, at least for the time, views. Um, so what were these views? Uh, well, Gordon had this idea that the Holy Spirit is inside every person, giving everyone a sort of holiness. Um, and that was pretty different than what the Puritans preached about like predestination and some people being saints and some being damned to hell. Um, and according to Gordon, people had a conversion experience, uh, which was really important to the Puritans. They felt that everyone had to have this conversion experience. But Gordon thought that the conversion experience was making the choice to follow that kind of like inner divinity. Um, And he believed that following that inner Holy Spirit was more important than listening to any earthly authority, whether that be civil or religious authority. Um, And additionally for Gordon, since both men and women had this same Holy Spirit, um, men and women should be equals. Uh, So at this point, we shouldn't be surprised that the Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay authorities weren't very happy about any of this teaching. I think it's also important to point out that Gordon seems to have had quite the difficult personality. 
Uh, a bit like Roger Williams, Gorton seems to have been kind of unable to shut up about his views, uh, even when he would have seriously benefited from just, you know, keeping his mouth shut. Uh, however, unlike Roger Williams, who seems to have gotten along fine with everyone outside of Massachusetts Bay, where he just had really strong religious differences, uh, Gorton seems to have just been a really difficult person generally. Um, he had re religious views that were considered quite radical, and he seems to have kind of combined that with a rather unyielding style of dealing with other people. In fact, the Plymouth Colony ended up kicking him out not only for his religious views, but also his obnoxious behavior when dealing with the local magistrates. Um, when Plymouth kicked him out, he went to Portsmouth, but apparently he couldn't get along with the people there. Uh, he was taken to court for some legal proceedings regarding a cow and ended up calling the magistrates who he was dealing with, uh, quote, saucy boys, end quote, uh, as well as some other colorful terms. Uh, this did not go over well, and Gorton was sentenced to a whipping. Uh, this prompted him to leave the Portsmouth settlement and try to go to Providence, but apparently he had such a bad reputation at that point that they wouldn't even let him come come in. Um, so literally none of the communities in New England would put up with him, and so he decided to start his own settlement. So to do this, he purchased some land from the Narragansett Indians in a place called Shawmet, which today is in the central part of Rhode Island. Uh, unfortunately for Gordon, some of the native leaders felt he had behaved improperly or like a little bit unfairly while doing this deal, and they appealed to the Massachusetts authorities. Uh, so the Massachusetts authorities hauled him back to Massachusetts Bay, where they put him on trial. Uh, of course, this trial was more about Gorton's religious beliefs than how he'd managed his land transaction with the Native Americans. Uh, after serving some prison time, Gorton and some associates went to England in hopes of getting some stronger legal claims to Chaumet. Thanks to the Earl of Warwick, uh, Gorton was able to get legal claim to Shawmet, uh, which he renamed Warwick in the Earl's honor. And so that brings us to the founding or the final founding of this third community in Rhode Island. Um, so these three settlements, Providence, Portsmouth, and Warwick, would be the first settlements in the colony of Rhode Island. Uh, founded by religious dissenters and some pretty colorful characters, I think you can see why Rhode Island was so often known as Rogue's Island. Uh, hopefully this episode gave you some insight into the founding of the colony of Rhode Island. Uh, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Mildly Amusing History Class.